0: So I would like to first of all congratulate you for the papers we are published in science also on nature. So maybe we can go for the the question we asked recently about the paper you published, a hardy question for soft robotics. That's first the question. Why do you think that paper was so important at this time and what kind of question do you think for the community should we consider and why it's relevant at this time?
1: Sure, so I had an opportunity to work on this paper and a recent paper in science robotics so hard questions uh, for soft ro- uh, robots uh, and, and uh, this was a, work, uh, a paper that I wrote uh, with Elliot Hawkes um, at uh, UC Santa Barbara uh, and also uh, Mike Tolly at UC San Diego. Um, and so I really have to credit them as, as really being the masterminds uh, on that paper. I was uh, in a sense kind of along for the ride. Uh, I mean, it was it was really grateful that I got a chance to work with them and, and contribute. Um, but uh, a lot of the, you know, really um, interesting ideas came about through a lot of the conversations we had. And and, and so I really need to credit uh, both uh, Mike and, and Elliot for uh, all the, the hard work that they did on that paper. Um, and um, the, the, really the, the reason that we wrote this paper uh, and the reason that we felt that it was timely uh, is that there's been a tremendous amount of work in, in soft robotics uh, over this past decade. Um, and you know, if you really kind of look back at uh, the, the academic literature and, and just kind of in the history of robotics more generally, um, it's, it's clear that there's been interest in soft robotics that date back, dates back decades, you know back to even to the 1960s and you know, as early as the 1950s, 1940s even. Um, and, and so, you know, the field of soft robotics is almost as old as the field of robotics, uh, you know, more, more generally. But it's, it's, what we noticed is that it's really in the past 10 years that uh, the field underwent this kind of inflection point. Um, And so we wanted to kind of take a pause and see, you know, just over this past 10 years of tremendous growth within the field, you know, what has changed? Uh, Where are we now? Uh, And what's the, you know, where are the expectations? And, um, you know, what's the trajectory kind of moving forward? And so that's why we wrote that uh, paper.
0: Mm -hmm, Great. But I guess to ask you, do you think what kind of things do you believe that we have to change it mostly? What kind of problem do you believe that we have to select this kind of problem. Is it a safe for publication? In that case, what are the motivation that sometimes you use software for sake of soft? If you can pinpoint exactly so that people can change and is it easy to be changed, do you believe in that case?
1: Right. Um, So I I think that there's a lot of different factors. Um, And so if I just kind of balance, you know, my own personal perspective with, um, you know, what I kind of see more generally within the academic community and then more broadly, when I look at industry, when I look at society, um, you know, when I look at a much wider range of stakeholders, different people need different things from the field of soft robotics. And so there's not one metric of success. There's not kind of one um, you know, kind of you know, objective in terms of what's meaningful or what's you know, worth investing in. It really depends on so many different factors in terms of who you are. You know, um, so I would say when we originally wrote this, this paper, um, it was really intended for the academic community and, and more specifically for uh, young researchers and, and students who are still kind of new to the field. Uh, who were making contributions in the field of soft robotics, yes, to help advance the science and to benefit society, but also to help um, achieve their own learning objectives and, and to, to help with their own education. Um, and so that's, in my mind, kind of one starting point to think about what is meaningful and, and how do we uh, invest our efforts in the soft robotics. And, and that is, what are we learning from what, are we, from what it is that we're doing? Um, and so I think that's, that's question number one. And, and the challenge that we posed uh, in that paper is, is to really kind of examine that question carefully. What's the new insight um, that is being gained from the work, is this something that's teaching us something new that can help inform practices down the road? Uh, or is this basically just rehashing principles that have already been well-established and just kind of finding just different iterations you know, to, to you know, express the, the same idea. Um, and so that I think was, was kind of the most important thing. We do mention uh, in in the paper kind of other areas where research and soft robotics can be in, impactful, um, you know, outside of the academic context. Um, and so industry, I mean, we you know we we mentioned some examples outside of soft robotics uh, where soft materials, you know, have been transformative uh, in 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 industry and in other areas. Like we mentioned, like you know the you know, the tire, for example, right? Yep. You know, that, I mean, you know, tremendously, you know, transformative uh, and in a technology, you know, based on, on you know, rubber uh, soft materials, um, you know, likewise in uh, uh, healthcare and, 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 and medicine, um, balloon angioplasty, for example, um, and, and, you know, various types of catheters that, that use uh, soft membranes and, and balloons. Um, uh, I mean, that, that's kind of another area that's been transformative in terms of the, you know, just the number of, of lives that have been saved uh, every year through through operations performed using those technologies. And so there are examples kind of outside the core domain of, of soft robotics. And, and I kind of think about them as being in more of these adjacent fields. So that kind of gives a picture of, of kind of what, you know, could be impactful in those areas. And, you know, the metrics of success there are going to be different. You know, those might not have been Basic scientific discoveries, but there was, you know, um, you know, there might not have been a journal publication that came out of it, uh, but there were still really important advancements that helped, you know, take society forward uh, in terms of quality of life, in terms of mobility, in terms of economic uh, well-being, uh, and also in terms of of health.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. So before going to that I need your paper about um, compliance and also how we have conducted hydrogel, so, but i will give us curious to ask you if you can briefly tell what could be other direction do you believe that we have to give more focus or attention when it comes to acad- academia and soft robotics? so what could be the direction do you believe or areas more, more deserve more focus
1: so I, I think increasingly um the areas that that deserve focus um i think should be more and more tied uh to societal issues and and challenges um mm-hmm. i think we're kind of getting to that stage, you know, we're getting kind of getting beyond that stage where it's just about developing these these uh, building blocks and these technological components. Now, I think we're ready to, to start tackling hard challenges within society. Um, and, and, you know, this is, you know, it could be in, in many different domains. Um, you know, everything from, you know, some of the challenges in healthcare and in medicine that we talk about in the paper to things like, you know, teleoperation, right, and then haptics and, and you know, and, and you know, social kind of interaction. I mean, there's, you know, plenty of, you know, ideas. And, you know, I don't want to even get started in terms of, you know, you know, discussing these, because, you know, these are, uh, I mean, there's just such a wealth of you know different ideas, and and you know the people have thought very creatively about how soft robotics uh, you know can be used uh, to to tackle challenges. Um, uh, I have a, a project uh, right now that's funded uh, by the National Oceanographic Partnership Program where they're very interested in um, using soft sensing technologies and, and soft robotics uh, for deep sea underwater applications so uh, you know monitoring oceanographic uh, conditions and and uh, you know marine life and and um, and, and so sensing and, and very remote uh, and you know hard to reach places um, and so there's there's just a wealth of different kind of opportunities there and so success is going to be dictated not by, you know, could you get that, you know, know, actuator to, you know, bend with that much more amplitude or with that much more work, you know, or deform with that much more work density, but can this enable now, uh, you know, a device that can, you know, actually operate and collect data that's useful to say an oceanographer uh, in in some deep sea type type application. Um, And so I think basically success is going to be dictated by um, the the results and the outcomes for people outside of the software box community can they, do they actually find these technologies useful and enabling? Um,
0: yeah, great. So, in your recent paper in Nature about uh, how we can design conductive and compliant hydrogel. If you can tell us first, what's the actual actual problem do you do you have in this paper about the problem you try to bring in that research line? right yeah.
1: so so for my research group um, I mean, we've long been interested in soft materials soft multifunctional materials we haven't had that much experience uh, with hydrogels I mean there's been a tremendous amount of research from from other groups around the world on, on you know uh, you know advancements in, in hydrogel uh, technologies um, and what's exciting about hydrogels uh, are that um, they can be engineered uh, to um, be in- mechanically very resilient, um, um, you know, highly stretchable, you know, mechanically very tough, um, um, resistant to kind of fracture and tearing, um, and also match um, the compliance of natural human tissue. Um, and so there's just an abundance of, you know, applications of, of hydrogels, uh, f- um, you know, in in, in medicine and, and, and healthcare. And, um, um, and there's also kind of been a lot of interest in conductive hydrogels. So hydrogels that not only have these um, unique uh, mechanical properties, uh, but uh, can also be used for um, you know, sensing and you can use them for a little, like, you know, to create uh, actuators that respond to uh, electrostatic or kind of electrical input. Um, now, a challenge that we encountered uh, with these um, conductive hydrogels is that um, they're ionically conductive as opposed to electrically conductive. Um, And for a lot of applications that that distinction really doesn't matter. Um, For certain types of um, electrically responsive actuators uh, or uh, capacitive uh, style sensors, um, whether it's electrical or ionic, um, it's good enough for um, for, for kind of uh, achieving uh, that uh, functionality. However, we found that for certain use cases, we needed these materials to be electrically conductive. Um, and the reason is that we needed these um, uh, electrical conductivity so that these materials could support a continuous flow of current as opposed to just uh, uh, you know, small impulses of, of, um, of charging. Uh, And then the other uh, is that with electrical conductivity, we can get much higher um, uh, 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 or I should say, with electrical conductivity, we can get much smaller electrical resistance. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that was important when we started to think about how to use conductive hydrogels for applications in uh, soft robotics, where you could use it as circuit wiring to uh, deliver pretty significant amounts of electrical current, say to an actuator, uh, and also for uh, wearable applications in, in uh, bioelectronics and, and uh, biosensing. So in, in bioelectronics, we looked at uh, the case of uh, stimulating uh, muscle uh, through neuromuscular stimulation or what's sometimes called functional electrical stimulation. And for that also for the types of you know voltages and, and currents we were using, uh, we, we discovered that uh, ionically conductive hydrogels weren't conductive enough. They really weren't cutting it. And and we weren't able to successfully use those for functional electrical stimulation. so if you wanted to actually activate a natural muscle, we had to transition to this much more conductive, electrically conductive uh, silver hydrogel composite. So that's what the the focus of this paper is.
0: Mm -hmm. Great. So why what is this trade-off when we come to the idea of designing conductive material and the compliance? How we can overcome this trade-off?
1: Right. So, and, and that's really the core of the study uh, was how you know how we could uh, how could we uh, kind of successfully uh, you know deal with this challenge this almost paradox of you know having these rigid metal fillers within the composite and so we use these uh, silver uh, nanoflakes and and the reason for using the silver flakes uh, is because the silver has very high electrical conductivity. Um, They have this, uh, you know, flake type form factor. um, So very thin kind of plate-like. And so that high aspect ratio um, uh, allows for um, uh, the ability of these flakes to kind of make contact with each other and Mm -hmm. form these what we're called kind of percolating networks. Um, And so the trade-off is that to get high conductivity, we need very high concentrations of these silver flakes usually, but having high concentrations of silver flakes will introduce a lot of rigidity and will alter the, the mechanical properties of the composite. So we'll end up going from being something that's very compliant and, and stretchy and high toughness, which is you know why hydrogels are so attractive in the first place. And then we end up, if we add too much silver filler to it, then we end up with uh, composites uh, that are kind of brittle um, and or very inelastic, you know, you stretch it and it might not spring back. Uh, when, you, when you let go. Um, and so to, to kind of overcome these, these challenges, what we discovered uh, was a way of creating these percolating networks of uh, silver particles uh, within the gel um, that exploit a few different features. And, and, and quite frankly, I mean, we, you know, the, the paper kind of uh, represents kind of the first iteration on this. This is something that we're still uh, working on and, and, and working to improve. Uh, but what we found is that we can actually make electrically conductive uh, silver hydrogel composites with these percolating networks of silver uh, flakes, if we use this dehydration process, um, where we basically swell up the hydrogel uh, with water. We have all the a very low concentration of silver particles inside. Uh, we let the um, composite partially dehydrate, and so what that Partial dehydration uh, does is allow water to kind of um, um, uh, 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 basically leave the uh, 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 space, uh, basically uh, uh, leave the interface between those silver flakes until we get to the point where the silver flakes make contact with each other because the silver flakes kind of stick to uh, to each other even later when we reintroduce water into the composite, those silver flakes, once they form that percolating network will stay stuck together. Uh, And so we'll have this this stable kind of connected network, uh, even though the concentration of silver flakes is is very small relative to the amount of water that we've reintroduced. Um, And so it's using this uh, hysteresis and adhesion between Mm -hmm. the flakes, along with this kind of partial dehydration step that allows us for the first time to create these electrically uh, conductive networks, of silver filler uh, inside hydrogels with very low l- with low enough concentrations of, of silver that we're able to preserve the mechanical properties of the hydrogel.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Right. I'm curious in that case, is there's any counterintuitive maybe results you have during this experiment or do you well, have something like that?
1: Of- Well, I will say that for us what was not clear at first and we really had to think about uh, was the fact that the conductivity would go up when the water kind of you know evaporated out uh, from the composite and that when we reintroduced water the conductivity stayed high. Um, It didn't suddenly, you know, uh, you know, plummet, you know, as as water got reintroduced. And so what that told us uh, was that water was probably interfering, had originally been interfering with the connectivity of these silver flakes. And then, like I said, when we dry out the water, basically those connections are formed and those connections stay stable even as we reintroduce water. Um, And so that was an to to be quite honest, that wasn't really our goal uh, when we started this research. It was something we kind of just, you know, observed empirically and then later, you know, talking with the the, the PhD student leading this work, uh, his name is Yunshik Ohm. When I talked with Yun about this and we kind of sketched things out on a whiteboard, you you know, it kind of occurred to us that maybe this is a mechanism that's allowing uh the you know this this composite to, to maintain this high conductivity. So that was kind of surprising to us. And we had to do some additional experiments just to kind of independently validate that that was indeed what was happening.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. So when it comes to the architecture or the how you design the the shape or the geometry, how that's significant in its design to come up with a goal have both of the characteristic being conductive and compliant in that case.
1: Right, so so like I said, a really important element for for this to work is that instead of using um, uh, kind of low lower aspect ratio beads, uh, we're using these kind of flat pancake like um, flakes, um, and so. I think that, I mean, uh, that having that kind of geometry is is very important. Um, and so, and that's generally well known, you know, within, uh, you know, materials engineering and design of these types of, of, of just composites kind of more generally, you know, where higher aspect ratio structures, whether they're nanotubes or nanowires or, you know, needle type or these plate-like structures, uh, usually um, having those, those kind of higher aspect ratios uh, allows you to achieve, enables you to achieve this, percolation or this, you know, physical contact and connectivity between uh, particles with lower concentrations of that, of that filler. Um, and so that, that definitely was a, was a key element
0: here. Mm-hmm. And there's sometimes concern about the mechanical stability for hydrogel. I don't know if you, how see the stability for uh, the performance or do you have any concern about that a limitation maybe you have witnessed or something you would like to enhance maybe?
1: Sure, I mean, so with, with these types of materials, um, I mean, something, you know, so open areas, uh, you know, that, that uh, you know, deserve kind of further exploration. Um, yes, I mean, certainly kind of, uh, you know, mechanical, well, I was gonna say so much the mechanical properties, but, you know, the hydrogels, I mean, there are challenges with, you know, the hydrogels also just, de- you know, losing their water over time, having the water evaporate, right? So challenges with sealing or having other types of fluids in place of water. Uh, that that are more stable and that won't uh, evaporate out. And, and there's been a lot of success by by other research groups. And so, you know, I'd say in a lot of cases that has been a, a solved problem. Uh, but still, nonetheless, something to to certainly be mindful of. Um, you know, and, and you know, other issues are you know just generally relate, and this is true of, of other material systems as well. Uh, you know, patterning techniques and ways to you know print these and pattern these materials using additive manufacturing methods and and you know other approaches, and so that's something also that that you know has, has been a focus of, of ours. Um, uh, and then uh, a, another issue that that we haven't really kind of uh, tackled uh, yet. Uh, is the issue of interfacing uh, these materials uh, with other types of components in, say, a electronic system and or a robotic system, um, and um, and so and again, there's been some research groups that have kind of shown the ability to put like a semiconductor chip or you know other kind of rigid component on these you know on hydrogels and then get really good uh, bonding, um, and and so that's of course going to be essential if we want to interface these electrically conductive hydrogel um, uh, traces, say with a surface mounted microelectronic chip. Suppose you want to, you know, mount some sensor, you know, or some, you know, microprocessor or radio transceiver, you know, some other type of component, um, you know, getting the resolution down of your print to, to be able to mate with the very narrow pins on those on those chips, that's one challenge. And then having a very robust connection, uh, that's another challenge. Um, and so, you know, th- there's, there's you know still quite a lot of work uh, uh, to be done. And, and and of course, you know, on the application side too. You know, there's you know, like I you know said before, there's been a lot of you know, tremendous kind of progress already in build, in developing these these building blocks. Now we're at a stage where we do have to find kind of actual useful uh, uses of these of these uh, materials.
0: Right. So when it comes to damage or resisting damage, how how do you think that we can design hard gel that could be more tough? And um, yeah? do you believe any capabilities for healing as well? Or do you believe that you can design a material that can never be damaged?
1: Right. No, I mean, the the materials that that we've been working with are quite uh, resilient. Um, So not in this publication, but um, uh, last year we had a a paper in uh, Advanced Materials where we, uh, instead of using silver, uh, we use liquid metal droplets inside hydrogel, uh, and we created composites uh, that uh, were both mechanically and electrically self-healing. Um, and so the hydrogel itself uh, is is um, uh, has a, a self-healing uh, property just through the, the physical bonds uh, that, that are uh, formed within uh, within the polymeric network of the gel. Uh, and then because the conductive um, materials uh, filler we used were liquid metal droplets um those liquid droplets could kind of fuse together and, and form new connections uh when, when we uh heal the, the material um and so uh that that's a uh, work that another lab member of mine uh, michael ford had reported in a paper in advanced materials last year um and so so yes to, to you know speak more generally i mean hydrogels are exciting uh, because they have this mechanical self-healing property and then based on the choice of filler and specifically in our case, you know, using liquid metal filler, we can also get these materials to be electrically uh, self-healing as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something do you believe when it comes to sensing as well, because there's also some time is about how we can design material that have the of actuation and sensing at the same time. Do you think when we embedding conductive material and massive material, that's, to which extent do you can do that and to make sure it's not yeah, undermining the stability of the material and are still functioning as a sensor as well?
1: Sure, right, so the, the approach that we've taken actually, again, uh, relies on the use of these liquid metal uh, droplets. So we use a, um, a an alloy of gallium and indium, uh, and it forms what's called a eutectic. So even though the gallium and indium by themselves are solid at room temperature, when you blend the two metals together, they are liquid uh, at room temperature. Uh, and when they're kind of in a droplet form, they actually stay liquid down to really low temperatures, You know, down to minus 50, minus 60 degrees uh, C. Um, now, th- these droplets, when they're inside, we can engineer them so that when they're suspended within uh, the um, uh, within the material, whether it's a hydrogel or a soft rubber, um, they won't be necessarily in contact with each other, and so the material will be electrically insulating. Uh, but then, when we damage the material, if we puncture it or we cut it, those liquid metal droplets will rupture and they'll connect with their neighbors and they'll form these conductive pathways. And so um, we had a paper, actually it's uh, back in 2019 um, in in advanced functional materials where we report on a damage sensing material that has these liquid metal droplets inside rubber. When you mechanically damage it, uh, those liquid droplets form new conductive pathways that basically allows the material to send out an electrical signal Locating where damage has occurred, um, and so it's it's a, it's it's you know certainly possible to to kind of introduce those um, that property into uh, into these types of materials. Now you asked about actuation, mm-hmm. so um, that you know also in 2019 we, we had a paper. Um, this is again Michael Ford, uh, who at the time was a postdoc in my group. Uh, this paper was published in uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, um, and there. For the matrix material, we use a special type of elastomer that has shape memory properties. It's called a liquid crystal elastomer. Again, filled with droplets of liquid metal, um, and uh, the the material was uh, uh, basically when it was either heated or um, stimulated with electrical current. That would cause the liquid crystal elastomer to contract and and actuate, so kind of function like an artificial muscle. Uh, And again, because of the presence of these liquid metal droplets, whenever we damage the material, say we poked a hole in it, or we say cut it, you know, with a razor or something that would create these new electrical pathways that uh, would um, uh, basically we could use for sensing damage. And also we, we demonstrated the ability to close loop. And so the material was kind of designed in a way that when we damaged it, um, that created an electrical short that caused current to flow through that would then heat up the material and, 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 and induce a contraction. So basically the material would actuate spontaneously and, and fully kind of autonomously in response to that mechanical damage, and so kind of leveraging a lot of these concepts that, that we've been exploring in these different studies.
0: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So I'm curious because since you're going to have your question, when you select a problem, there's maybe many possibilities to select a solution. For you, how you figure out what could be the right solution when you try to solve the problem? For example, like that case.
1: Right. Well, well there's kind of a, a variety of ways to, to come out this. I mean the the reality is for better or for worse uh, in academia. Usually the the problem def- definition comes partway through the research or sometimes at the end of the research. Sometimes you try to attempt something or you think you're solving one problem, you fail at solving it, but you come up with a solution to a different problem, right? And you have to kind of think about, you know, and, and be a little bit creative about what is that, you know, what is that problem that, that you just solved, right? And, and so it's not, you know. And that's you know I say for better or for worse um i mean in you know outside of academia um it's it's you know and I've been learning this through you know uh, you know my my engagements with companies and you know spin off you know startups and and all that you know where uh, they don't really have that luxury of following that that very um, uh, kind of nonlinear sequence um so yeah, within academia you know with with some of these projects, i mean Yes, I mean the the kind of the features and properties that we end up discovering weren't necessarily what we kind of set out to discover when we started the project. Um, and so, and, and you know I'm not ashamed to say that I mean that's true of a lot of my colleagues and, and, and that's just kind of the nature of research and that's part of what makes research fun is that unexpected nature of it um, and so. So yes, I, I would say that, that, um, you know, that that's definitely kind of a feature. With that said, though, there have been a few cases you know, where we were very deliberate. You know, I had a kind of an idea in mind and, you know, and went to kind of execute or you know, one of my students, my lab members kind of had an idea and it did follow kind of that more linear pathway where we started with a hypothesis, did some experimental validation or did some experiments and then were able to validate or provide support for that hypothesis. Um, so there have been um, cases like that. Uh, I mean, one example of that would be a lot of the work that we've done with um, these electri- these materials with high electrical permittivity, uh, where we have liquid metal droplets inside the rubber. Um, that was kind of that started out basically from the math. Uh, you know, we we ha- had a um, prediction that adding liquid metal droplets to, to rubber would enhance its thermal conductivity and also those le- electrical permittivity. And then, you know, with that, we then went and um, um you know did the experiments um going back to my my phd research um uh, uh, we you know when i was working on gecko inspired adhesives uh, i mean i wasn't the, i didn't initiate the project but the people who did um basically got inspiration from the you know natural gecko lizard right and they did you know uh keller autumn um you know who you know uh, you know as a professor at lewis and Clark college um, you know, who had been you know, the, studying geckos kind of his whole academic career, taken one of these gecko foot hairs under a scanning electron microscope and then saw the, the kind of the micro and nanoscale structures. And then by understanding how the natural gecko was able to climb walls using these, these kind of uh, uh, thin fibers that basically informed the engineers on what to fabricate in the lab to create a synthetic. Uh, gecko adhesive and so certainly it's possible to get inspiration from nature or to come up with some hypothesis based on you know mathematical formulas and, and first principles and then go and, and um, uh, uh, basically validate uh, that um, uh, you know those ideas that certainly does happen but that happens maybe like you know not even half the 50 percent of the time um, so but, but, you know, like I said, I mean, I have been, you know, more and more working with um, um, partners within industry and I've been working with startup companies and there they, it's a very different, um, I mean, there it's very much task driven and, um, and, and there, um, you know, if there's an existing technology that works, they'll just use kind of what's what's available already. I mean, they'll, if when, whenever possible, try to avoid trying to invent something new or trying to make some scientific yeah. discovery if they don't have to.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, I, I'm curious to ask you a question because lately we have some question about what could be the most visible applications of robotics in industry. We have few examples, but from your experience, what do you think that the next thing you believe could be visible to be deployed?
1: Um, I mean, be- I have so so talking with folks in industry. I mean, I've um, been um, uh, you know introduced to a lot of kind of you know interesting ideas that I wouldn't have you know come up with uh, on my own. Um, so. I, I mean, one one kind of area. Uh, you know, I, I had a great conversation uh, with um, you know somebody with with you know decades of industry experience who was excited about the potential of soft robotics for pipe inspection, and mm-hmm. and you know and um, you know and, and looking at uh, basically inspection within you know uh, aerospace structures and in aircrafts. Um, so you know certainly that that that's kind of one where there could be a potential. Uh, and again, I mean, what what they're kind of after might. You know, it could just be kind of something that's kind of almost an incremental improvement over kind of what's been done in the past. Um, It doesn't have to be some, you know, very elaborate, you know, biologically inspired uh, robot, you know, it could just be simply be basically a balloon, you know, on some end effector that basically just, you know, inflates through the, you know, through the tube and is, you know, sensorized and, you know, or maybe as a, you know, there's a camera that can kind of, you know, be tethered through it. So, um, um, yeah, I mean the, the the actual kind of industry use cases don't have to be some highly ambitious and highly exotic uh, kind of implementation. Um, um, so so that that's one. Um, I mean there has been uh, you know the, the growing interest in in kind of exosuits and exoskeletons. I mean I think you know, up until now, a lot of uh, these kind of assistive technologies have been mechanically passive. So they haven't had any kind of actuators or, you know, active elements. I mean, they're just kind of more like braces and they have kind of spring-like elements to provide kind of, you know, support uh, to, to say, uh, you know, somebody working in, in kind of a, um, uh, in a warehouse. Um, but uh, more and more, there is interest in having, you know, some degree of, of kind of, you um, uh, active functionality, and that active functionality doesn't even have to be necessarily an actuator. It could just be like a clutch or a material that you know changes stiffness. Um, you know, for a lot of cases, that's actually you know even even more interesting than something that actually moves and and, and you know um, you know moves the limbs and you know mm-hmm. and actuates like you know like a conventional you know robot. So, so yeah, I mean, the, you know, th- those are just kind of things that have kind of cropped up um, in, in discussions with with folks in industry. Of I course, there's that. also the the, you know, the medical space as well. And, you know, I'm, you know, brought up balloon angioplasty as, as an example yeah. uh, before and, you know, in some respects, I mean, you know, the, the medicine for, for decades has been adopting soft material technologies and, and, and yeah. kind of, you know, a lot of the same principles as soft robotics for, you know, a lot of uh, what they do. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's that, you know, there will continue to be opportunities in, in healthcare yeah. as well.
0: Thanks so much for having the point. Yeah. So I'm curious about the technological blocks in that last in this year. What are you think? Maybe more advanced now so far when it comes to I don't know the application side or techniques or or maybe still a technological block. Do you believe still in the field we need to address this technological block? In which area? Right, I believe. Yeah. Um,
1: you know, I'm of the belief that. Um, I mean, we probably a lot of the technologies and the materials are actually good enough. Um, I mean, and and you know, I, I would say that you know you know recently there's been a lot of really kind of exciting advancements and you know additive manufacturing of of you know soft materials and conductive materials and creating these highly heterogeneous heterogeneous kind of integrated systems with a wider range of materials. Um, I mean, early on when I was doing research in this field, it was very difficult to find, you know, good, you know, 3D printers that could, you know, print, you know, elastomers, for example. And mm-hmm. now there's this kind of, you know, so many tremendous, you know, resources. And then, then it went from, you know, okay, there were elastomers, but then, you know, finding something that could kind of print and, you know, integrate kind of conductive, you know, soft materials. But now we've seen kind of advancements there as well. So I think there's been, you know, really kind of exciting progress with with kind of, 3D printing techniques and rapid prototyping tools, um, and uh, and so that that's been great. Um, you know, I would say kind of there's also been some nice progress on interfacing soft materials with rigid microelectronics uh, and and other kind of components that you would need for a fully functional electronic or robotic system. Um, and so I would say there's still um, you know still a little bit more work that needs to be done there. I mean, there's been a lot of great progress, um, but but we don't. We still don't have kind of a workflow uh, for creating highly soft and stretchable circuits that, with surface-mounted electronics, that is as robust as what we have for creating rigid PCBs and, or even you know, flex PCBs for that matter. Um, so, so I, I think that still um, you know basically uh, needs needs attention. But you know, like you know, like I was you know uh, you know I've been saying. I mean, I think a lot of what we have already is good enough and now it's really about you know tackling kind of real world problems and i think once when we you know attempt you know solutions to these role problems i think the failures will help kind of teach us kind of what the remaining gaps are Um, but but until then i'm not um you know you know until then it's not really kind of clear obvious kind of what the bottle what the remaining bottlenecks are um, mm-hmm. So, so that that's kind of you know why a lot of my own research uh, you know is is focused on um, you know tackling some of these these kind of bigger challenges and say like haptics or teleoperation or kind of you know fully autonomous fully untethered soft robots. Um, or a lot of the work that you know I'm, I'm doing with our industrial partners and, and some of the spin-off companies, uh, you know, the startups that have you know come out of uh, you know out of Carnegie Mellon, um, and so working with them now to actually find practical uses for, for these materials.
0: Great. So if you have two questions left, the first one I don't know through research is very challenging. I don't know if you have any moment of as uh, through research. I don't know if you have any and how you can deal with that, or oh, I don't know if that's something you have or not.
1: Sure. Um, I, I think I do have, uh, you know, I think a lot of my doubts um, th- that do arise in research um, actually are tied back to what was discussed in that science robotics paper uh, that that you know that uh, you know I helped write with with uh, you know Elliot and and Mike Tolley. Um, you know is what we're doing kind of meaningful is it really advancing the science or is it just basically iterating and rehashing a lot of the same concepts and ideas and and that was kind of the challenge that you know that that we threw out there you know not because we were like you know disappointed or you know frustrated with the community but you know it's something that even just you know looking inward i mean you know it's something that i think about you know when when we kind of put another paper out you know is this truly advancing the science or is this just um, you know, is this just getting a paper out for its own sake? Um, and so, you know, I, you know, but there is this kind of other element uh, where you know these publications and the research output is not just about advancing the science; it's also about you know the basically helping students and and you know uh, you know PhDs and postdocs and, and also faculty who are kind of earlier in their careers kind of achieve their career goals as well and get the experience of of writing papers and. and performing complete experiments and so it's completely okay you know if you know a paper is not a breakthrough you know it's okay if there's an outcome that's somewhat incremental you know because there's more there are other values there besides some you know big high impact publication or some big scientific or intellectual leap you know sometimes there is value in you know rigorously kind of re-examining you know a, a a principle and and kind of you know making maybe some incremental new you know discovery or new insight or, or show how that principle applies in a slightly different context uh, there's also value in in you know learning how to write a journal paper right and and you know and 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 you know providing kind of an appropriate kind of you know framing of the work you've you've uh, done um, and and so you know and, and there's just the reality and a lot of academic communities um, that you do have to kind of publish and, and you have to kind of demonstrate the ability to do independent research and, and stay active, you know, uh, in order to make progress in your career. So I'm sensitive to all those things. And so I don't wanna uh, come off and, 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 you know, be critical that, you know, unless you're doing something groundbreaking, you shouldn't do it at all. That That's by no means uh, the case. And, and it's very much dependent also where you are in, in the stage of your education and, and your career development. So. But I mean, with that said, I mean, for any individual, as you transition, as you grow in your career, what was important to you before might not be important to you, you know, moving forward. And I think that is something that I'm processing now that I'm a tenured faculty. Um, and I think that's a lot, you know, something that a lot of my, you know, current and former lab members, you know, process as they move through the different stages in their, in their, in their career.
0: Thanks so much for that. So I don't know if you have any advice you would like to give because you already mentioned in the last episode advice was given to you. I don't know if any advice is sought to give to young researchers who would like to say.
1: Sure. Um, What I will say um, is that, you know, you should you should find a lot of intrinsic value uh, in in what it is that you're doing in terms of the research that you're doing, in terms of the uh, you know scientific questions uh, that you're you're trying to answer um, and don't get too worried or too fixated basically on you know the impact. Uh. Uh. The you know the the impact factor of the journal that you're publishing in, or, or you know the the you know the affiliation of that you know of that of that you know publishing uh, company, right? So you know the theme of this uh, uh, you know series of podcasts are on you know publications and, and science and and nature, right? And uh, and there's a lot of value um, that you know the, the the these that these higher impact. Uh, uh, journals provide. Um, you know, they they do have a very, you know, high standard in terms of novelty, in terms of scientific rigor, in terms of, you know, how broad and multidisciplinary the, you know, the you know, the audience is. Um, but there's also a lot of value in publishing in more specialized journals uh, as well, uh, and, and and we're also publishing, you know, in, in journals that you know are not you know part of the Nature Publishing Group or tied to Science or some of these you know or you know Wiley or some of you know these other kind of leading publishing groups, you know. So so you know first and foremost, uh, don't let kind of you know the the status or the impact factor of the journal really be a factor, uh, uh, you know, in, in in kind of the work you do. And then after you've completed. Completed the work and you're ready to put that manuscript together. That's the time then to kind of select what an appropriate uh, journal would be and what, you know what the right venue should be. Um, at least within engineering, kind of within my kind of you know to, within my community, I've I've never really found that um, the, that the actual um, impact factor of the journal has been a really critical factor in terms of you know my my own you know ability to to kind of achieve my my own kind of educational goals and and, and career goals. Um, and uh, you know, but again, there, there's still kind of value, um, but but that's not kind of, but but you know, just put it within you know the the right context. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of what I would what I would kind of say. Um, to, you know. So yeah, yeah,
0: thanks for this point. Yeah, I don't know if you have any final words before closing. Yeah. Do you have any final words, like, for the audience before
1: closing? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I don't. I mean, I, I do want to thank you uh, for for kind of running a, a wonderful, broad, uh, you know, podcast and and you know, giving uh, you know, folks uh, you know who worked in the field of soft robotics to, to kind of share their perspectives and, and thoughts. Um, and then I you know generally hope that this is useful and, and really happy to kind of chat with anybody. So anybody listening to this podcast who um, you know has more questions and wants to reach out, just send me an email.
0: Thank you, Koma. It was a real pleasure to have you again, and uh, I do appreciate your time. Thanks a lot, thank you. Thank you.
1: Yep, my pleasure, thank you.